0: Open up your Bibles and pull out your message note sheet. I want to give you a little context to where we are in the story today. If you didn't pick up your sheets on the way in the door, get up and head back to the back tables or send someone in your row to grab a few copies. You're going to need this one if you don't have it from last week. Those of you online, welcome to everyone who's joining us online. Your online host will direct you. If you go to eaglechurch.com resources, you can get this one. If you just scroll down, you'll see Prophets and Kings timeline. There's also a message note sheet. They can direct you there. So the reason this handout's important is I want to frame the entry of the prophets into the storyline of the Bible. So we're in the section of First Kings, and we've been looking at how, how the nation of Israel was at one point a united kingdom. It was one nation under God. It was Israel. Under Saul and David and Solomon. And then Solomon had that slow, and then it turned into a fairly speedy fade. And then the kingdom fractured last week. What was united became splintered and fractured. That was last week. And the kingdom, the nation of Israel now, has two main parts to it. Ten northern tribes called Israel, two southern tribes called Judah. So that's how this handout becomes helpful. It frames the north and the south from this part of your Bible storyline. So I'm on page 300 in my Bible. So from page 300 to the end of the story, when you read Israel, you got to understand it's talking about the ten northern tribes. When you read Judah, it's the two southern tribes. And if you trace the lines of the kings... Each of the north and the south then had different monarchs reigning, different kings. And the southern kingdom of Judah, if you scan down the column there under kings on Judah, you'll see there are eight black crosses by the eight godly kings. Eight out of 20 across 300 years did it the Lord's way. They sought God. They did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Eight out of 20, they batted 400. Probably God was looking for a little more than that, but not a bad batting average as a whole for considering the northern kingdom of Israel. If you scan the other column, Israel, you're like, there aren't any black check marks. 200 years, 19 kings, 0 for the run. 0 for 19 godly kings. Yeah, Israel. And so here's what God decided to do. He's like, okay. The kings, for the most part, aren't interested in listening to God, heeding his word, paying attention to his commands. So God's, he's not up there wringing his hands going, what am I going to do? God's like, I'm going to start working with a group called the prophets. God's going to speak to the prophets. He's going to call the prophets. He's going to direct them and guide them and put his words and keep the character of God before the nation because the kings are kind of off the rails. So we're going to get the prophets to hold the fort on the character of God. Because remember, the role of Israel, which you got to think about this now, the role of Israel, look at the sheet, is supposed to model to the surrounding nations who God is and what life with Him is like. Well, if you're 0 for 19 in the north, you're you're probably going to have to come up with another way of getting that done. God says, I'll get it done. I'll use the prophets. And so the column on your sheet now, do you see it? On the right-hand side, Judah and Israel, this helps you understand the storyline of the prophets and how they work in concert with the kings. So you, to understand all of the prophets, like today we're going to look at Elijah or Elisha next week or Isaiah or Daniel or Jeremiah, the prophets are ministering and serving at a time period of the kings. Do you see that, how the chart's put together? So when you look down at Elijah, where we're on today, around 874 B.C., and you slide over to the left, he's a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, and the king at that time is Ahab. You see how that works? And so keep this in your Bible somewhere, and as we're going through the section, as we're reading through the Bible together, it's going to get a bit confusing when we get into the prophets, and you're like, what is this? you got to set the prophet in the context of, are they to the north or to the south? Can you imagine the prophets who were sent to the north? Do you think they had a lot of encouraging things to say? No. That's why when you look at the prophets who were assigned to the north, it's not the most encouraging read because it generally is calling the people to repent and turn their hearts back to God or there's massive destruction coming, which is the destiny of the north. The end point of the north is, this is where the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel comes. The ten northern tribes are scattered about and intermarry with the Assyrians, never to be regathered again. That's the ten northern tribes. God says, oh, for 19, I'm done. He sent all the prophets there trying to get the people's hearts to turn. They didn't turn, so he said, that's it. I'm going to work with the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's why we know today, right, that's why in the New Testament link, the Jews in our New Testament journey trace their lineage back through the southern kingdom of Judah, so Jesus is the Jew who comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, because God said, I, eight out of 20, I can work with that, and that's why your prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah do have some affirming and encouraging things to say, depending on what king they're at. All right, so thanks for letting me nerd out on you a little bit there, so come back. If I lost you somewhere in there, but I'm trying to help you set... Where we're at in the story, so Elijah today is a prophet to the north, and what we're going to do with Elijah? His name means, as I put on your sheets, the, it's that God, my God, is Jehovah, and we're going to map Elijah's life four key kind of areas, and here's what I want us to think about today: the journey from where the, the journey from where you are to where God wants you to be starts right where you are. I don't know what you come in with this morning. I don't know what you've been journeying through. Whatever your current is, in order to go from current to where God wants you to be, you have to have some clarity right where you are. So today we're going to map our lives with God using Elijah's map. We're going to kind of look at four stops on the way Elijah and God unfolded in their life. And we'll just kind of put the you are here dot somewhere on this journey. So here's Elijah's first stop. I put in your notes, it's the land of Tishbe. Say Tishbe. So Tishbe is a place of beginnings. This is where Elijah grew up. Here's a picture of that land, a fairly remote section of the country. You can see there it's in modern day, right on the border of West Bank in modern day Jordan. And so it's got this place about 30 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's rugged, it's mountainous, it's known for solitude, it's known for quiet space. And this is where the foundation of Elijah's life was built. He spent a lot of time alone with God outside in the rugged terrain. This is where Elijah learned to listen to the still small voice of God Tishbe. It's a place of beginnings. It's a place where you're just getting started. It's a place where God is preparing you for something that's next. You know you're in Tishbe when those are the kinds of vocabulary you use. Like you have a sense that there's something new beginning. You have a sense that God's doing some foundational work in your heart. I like what Oswald Chambers said. I put this quote in your notes. says, never make a principle out of your experience. Let God be as original with other people as he is with you. So let God be original. So here's Elijah and Tishbe. And so students, so those of you who come through this summer like we've had with our student ministry, some of you have a strong sense, students, that you're in a place of Tishbe right now, a place of beginnings. You go to Ignite Camp, you have an amazing encounter with God at Ignite. Maybe you go to the DR trip, you have another encounter with God. It's kind of building in this sense. We have like seven or eight people going to get in the waters of the baptism, and there's a sense of tishbi, a sense of beginnings. It's, it's students saying, you know what? I'm going to go a new way. I'm going to make a new declaration. It's kind of a, a new day. I'm going to set some new priorities. I'm going to change some friendship circles. I'm going to handle my media influences differently. It's tishbi, students. That's where a lot of you find yourself coming through this summer. It's a good thing and that's somewhat what the waters of baptism in a couple weeks are going to spring forth. But Tishbe isn't just reserved for the young people, right? Those of us older, you might be in a place of Tishbe. I've been super encouraged about a whole group of men. I think there's a movement going on of men within not just Eagle Church in like Zionsville area. There's something going on. We've got 70 plus men on Wednesday night gathering and there's a sense of some Tishbe beginnings, foundation stuff going on as we're getting together on Wednesdays and and we're just opening up God's Word and we're kind of man-to-man talk and I think there's some beginnings. I think it's some foundation and I think the same thing's holding true for the ladies. I think there's some cool things on the horizon as I listen to the women's ministry leadership team and hear about some of the things coming up for the ladies and the studies coming and small group ministry and discipleship initiatives. There's some places of Tishbe, so you know you're there when you have this vocabulary building of, God's preparing me for something. It's a Tishbe. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Second stop on mapping Elijah's life is a place called Zarephath. Say Zarephath. So it's in 1 Kings 17. Look at verse 8. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and said, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So Zarephath is just kind of north and west of Tishbe geographically where we're at. It's in a village along the Mediterranean Sea. So there's a widow there. She and her son are living. They're just barely scraping by. And Elijah is told to go there and supposedly that um, she's going to supply Elijah with what he needs to keep living, just physical, basic needs for each day. Look at verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives... She tells the widow, you're going to supply for me. The widow replies, as surely as the Lord your God lives, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So reading between the lines here, I don't think she has a ton of leftovers stacked in the fridge to offer Elijah. Elijah's there to say, hey, God sent me here. You're going to like." cook up some food and make sure that not only your family's taken care of, but actually I'm taken care of. This is what the Lord said is going to happen. It's not the kind of place that, I'm sure when he thought he was knocking on her door, I'm sure he probably thought she must be fairly stockpiled. In a sense, she's barely making it to the point where she thinks perhaps starving to death We're just at the end of the jug of oil and the jar of flour. And Elijah listens to her concerns and then says this to her, verse 15, She went away and did as Elijah had told her. He said, go ahead and start making your food. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. And I put, there's a little picture artist rendering of the scene, right? With Elijah and the widow and her son and the dialogue and the sense of God's going to provide even when you can't see how. So if Tishbe is a place of beginnings, I want you to think of Zarephath as the place of endurance, as the place where you press on even when you just have a little bit of oil left in your jug and just a little bit of flour left at the bottom of the jar. You're at Zarephath. You know you're at Zarephath when you can't see how you're going to get through what you're going through. When you knock on the door and the person answering says, We don't even have enough food for us to survive, yet you're telling me to go ahead and get cooking and you're going to be fed with us. Visible reality doesn't speak clarity, it speaks more uncertainty. You're at Zarephath. You're at Zarephath when you're at the end of your rope, the widow and a person standing at your door saying, hey, by the way, while you're at the end of your rope, I'm at the end of my rope too, and you're going to help me. Anybody been there? You know you're at Zarephath. You know you're at Zarephath when you've got the very last drop of oil in your jar, and the very last bit of flour in the jug, and you're... You're believing, you're trusting, you're hoping, you're standing on the promise that God will renew, He will restore, He's going to come through in some way, He's going to replenish something. It's not going to be on your time or on their time or in anyone else's time, it's going to be on time, His time. You're at Zarephath. Guys, I don't know if you've noticed in general, God's time frame doesn't align very often with our time frame. At least, that's, I'll just speak for me. My experience with God is God's time frame is generally much slower than I prefer it to be, and it's generally more confusing on why He chose when He chose to come through and the way He chose to come through from my perspective. Now, from God's perspective, He's on a different agenda. He's got it in His hands. He knows, he knows the jar's not going to run out and the jug's not going to run. He knows Elijah and the widow and the son, Ah. Uh, is trust. Visible reality speaks one thing, but Elijah, and I'm sure the widow and the son on the backside of this story, thought, well, invisible reality is trumping visible reality here, and so you know you're at Zarephath. And look, as a church, some of you could be the mayor of Zarephath. Some of you have consistently gone through seasons of your life that you thought you were just about to exit Zarephath, only to find out It was a loop back to set up camp there. And you just like built a home there. And you wonder, how much longer, Lord? And I thought it was endure and persevere and stay steady. And I know you're going to come through. And he has come through. And you've seen him provide. And you thought it was a doorway out of something only to find it cycling back to this very... That's Zarephath. That's the widow and her son. That's Elijah in the story. So is that where you put your you are here dot this morning? Is that where the Lord finds you this morning? Are you at Tishbe, a place of beginning, something new springing up? Or maybe you're at Zarephath where you're you're just really in the daily grind trying to battle out what visible reality says, holding on to the promises of what God says in invisible reality, trying to reconcile the two looking at your jar and seeing there's just a little bit of flour left in that jar, looking at your jug, and there's just a little bit of oil left right there. I don't know why God chooses to have some live often in this space where it's wonderful when the jar gets filled up, and it's great, but so often, for some of you, it's like God consistently takes you to spaces where it's just about the end, and then he comes through. I don't know why, but Elijah would know. Elijah would say, yeah, yeah. He spent a good chunk of his time as a prophet in that very space. It's called Zarephath. So now the third stop in mapping out Elijah's journey is a place called Mount Carmel. This is perhaps Elijah's most famous geographical stop. This would be the equivalent of like his modern day, like the spiritual equivalent to a UFC heavyweight fight on pay-per-view. This is his Mount Carmel moment, right? So this is where we've got 450 prophets of a god named Baal against Elijah's one prophet. He's the one prophet of a god named Yahweh. Remember, the king is Ahab. Ahab has a wife, Queen Jezebel. So Ahab and Jezebel have 450 prophets bowing down and paying homage to this god named Baal. And they've decided to set up a showdown on Mount Carmel to see whose god is really God. And so the showdown was this, they built this altar area and they wanted to see which God would send fire down and burn up the altar. And so Elijah being the gracious and courteous man that he is, he lets the Baal prophets go first, 450 of them by the way, 450, he lets them go. They start chanting, they start praying, they start singing, they go through all of their stuff here in verse 20, so we're in chapter 18 now, verse twenty. here's where we pick up the story. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. That's a long prayer time right there. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, verse 27, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God, notice little g, Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So lest the, you know, the prophets can talk smack here. Come on now. They got, they're talking some smack. He's running his mouth. He's like, hey, it's been going on a long time. And it's just, I mean, nothing's happening. The altars, it's just there. No fire altars there. They're waiting for the fire to come. And they just keep chanting, and they just keep crying out, and Elijah piles on. And finally, Elijah says, okay, enough. You've had your chance. It's Yahweh's show now. Step aside. And then he gets, calls some of the workers together and says, hey, let's, let's double down on this deal. Go ahead and take your buckets of water and drench the altar. Pour water all over it. Fill the trench around the altar with water. Because remember, fire from heaven is what's going to be the sign. So it's like, double down. Baal couldn't get to do it bone dry. Yahweh is going to do it soaked with water. That's what Elijah is saying. Now remember, just one of him, 450 of them. Can you imagine the catcalls coming from the chorus there that was going on? And so here's what happens. Verse 36, chapter 18, he steps forward. Elijah steps forward and prays, "'O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, "'let it be known today that you are God in Israel.'" and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that are turning their hearts back again. Verse 38, then, circle this, the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and they licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, They fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. So this is Mount Carmel. If Tishbe is a place of beginning and Zarephath is a place of endurance, Mount Carmel is the place of breakthrough. Mount Carmel is the place where God shows up and shows off, where everyone around will conclude that had to be the Lord. You know you're at at Mount Carmel when like a phone call I took recently from a, a lead pastor in the area, I was asking about how it was going at his church, and he went on to describe the last 18 months of his life, and he said, in their church and in their ministry, they've never seen more spiritual fruit than the last 18 months. They've had more baptisms, more salvations, more participation in, in small groups, and they just went on and on, in discipleship, ministries. He just said, it's an abundance. It's 10, 20, 30-fold of everything they've seen in all the history of their church. I was just so happy for this pastor. I was rejoicing with him. It's the language of Mount Carmel. They just lived 18 months on Mount Carmel as a ministry. And I said, hey, would you mind praying for a few of the rest of us? That's what I was thinking. I was like, hey, you want to pray? Because that's not the common dialogue. But it's, it's great when you see that. And there may be some of you come in and you're at Mount Carmel. You know you're at Mount Carmel when around every corner of your life seems to be God's blessing and favor and goodness. In your work front, in your family front, in your health front, in your finances front. It's just favor and blessing and goodness. Praise God. Mount Carmel, it's breakthrough. God's showing up and showing off. It's not, you don't have to be embarrassed to be in that place. But everyone in Tishbe or in Zarephath could use a little community with those in Mount Carmel. That's super helpful. Like, you could go to those in Mount Carmel and say, hey, let's have them lead the prayer gathering over this. We need to praise some hope. We need to pray some perspective into the Zarephath setting. And that's what Elijah, now remember, Elijah's living all three of these stops. He starts at the beginning, he goes to the endurance, and now he's at the breakthrough. And you're like, I mean, this is mountaintop moment. And all these prophets of Baal, they're just falling on their face. They're like, they've, you win. Because really it wasn't about Elijah versus the prophets, it was really about Yahweh versus Baal. And Yahweh flexed his muscle and said, I'll demonstrate to all who are watching who the real God is. And so the first stop, you got Tishbe, the place of beginning. you got Zarephath, the place of endurance. you got Mount Carmel, the place of breakthrough. The fourth and final stop on our tour, mapping out Elijah's life with God. I called it the juniper tree. Because it may be surprising to you, you think coming off of Mount Carmel, he would have just sailed, you know, mountaintop to mountaintop. That's not really what occurs here because King Ahab, remember his role, he's the king of the land, king of Israel, Queen Jezebel, they're all worshiping Baal. They just got punched in the spiritual nose. Their spiritual egos got deflated because all their prophets got shown up. They're, they're upset. They're so upset that they decide they've had enough of Elijah and his antics So Jezebel says she wants to assassinate Elijah. She basically commissions anyone to go and kill Elijah. And so this is the scene we pick up. Chapter 19, verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods, notice little G, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And so the picture of like, I'm going to take you out. Just like all the prophets of Baal were taken out, I'm taking you out. And then we read this in verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, some of your translations say juniper tree, and sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've Had enough, Lord, he said. So if Tishbe is a place of beginning and Zarephath is a place of endurance and Mount Carmel is a place of breakthrough, Juniper is the place of endings. It's the place of endings. It's the place where you're so worn out and you're so discouraged and you're so alone. It's the place where the battles of everyday life are just exhausting you to the point where you're not sure you can just kind of Get up and keep going for another day. It's the place where you're saying to the Lord, if not out loud, at least in the back of your mind, Lord, I think I've had enough. I think I've had enough here. I think I might be done. And now it begs the question, does it not? Like Elijah, a prophet of God who just had Mount Carmel, who saw him come through at Zarephath, like how could that happen? And if you walk with God long enough, I think you'll experience the juniper tree effect. Do you know that juniper trees come often on the backside of Mount Carmel? Sometimes our spiritual mountaintop moments. I want you to think about Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, he's baptized in the Jordan, heaven's open, spirit of God descends like a dove. I mean it's unbelievable scene, Matthew chapter 3. I mean, he's baptized in the Jordan. It's an unbelievable moment. All these people are witnessing it. What's the beginning of Matthew chapter 4 say? He's led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. On the backside of our spiritual mountaintops are often some of our deepest valleys and darkest days. Because some, some of it's just a human emotional thing, like you come off of a big... Like those who are getting baptized in a few weeks, one of the things I will talk with them about in preparation is to be kind of armor up and to be very aware that the next few months of their life, the spiritual battle is going to be intense. There's a tendency on the mountaintop moment to come down to a juniper tree moment where you're just like Elijah goes from seeing fire from heaven fall on the altar to saying Jezebel, who is very powerful, she's the queen of the land, who wants to assassinate him, and he goes in the emotional tank. He runs off and he goes under a juniper tree and says, Lord, you just want to take my life. I'm done with this thing. I've had enough. And that can sometimes happen. The backside of our spiritual highs come some of our deepest lows. And for some of you, you know, that's your, you're at the juniper tree this morning. I put this quote in your notes. I like what Dan Allender says about these juniper tree seasons of life. Our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. Did you hear that? It is in the silence of the desert that we hear our dependence on noise. It is in the poverty of the desert that we see clearly our attachments to trinkets we cling to for security and pleasure. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out. Hear this, crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or die. That's when you know you're at the juniper tree. You may not literally be at the place where you're saying, Lord, just take my life, but you might be emotionally there, mentally there. You're just, you're beyond the end of your you're like, you have no idea how next is going to occur. You're just, that's why the artist rendering, V, can you go ahead and put up the picture? I think the artist captured juniper tree best with the way he painted Elijah and how he put the picture there. That's when you know you're at the juniper tree. Can you see it? You see the scars from his journey with God? I mean, he's a man who's lived some life you just done. You know, several of you have been asking Kendra and I recently you know, how we're doing through all of this, and thank you for all your kind words and notes and emails and texts and things you've sent to the house. We're grateful for your prayers and your support. And just to be candid, I think for us, we feel a lot like the juniper tree season. And it's not just been this past month. I think it's just been the cumulative effect of some things. I think where you just kind of get to the place where you're like, I think I just had enough of all that, like just the constant, you know, this place of endings. And you know, this can happen. I mean, collectively as a Humans on the earth, the last 18 months, we just lived in a constant state of global endings, like every single news feed is the latest data on how many people lost their lives over the last 24 hours, right? There's all the death counts and death charts, and I'm like, you just get immersed in some of that, and then it happens, right, very personally, it strikes close to home. Whether it's the Sill family losing their son recently, or several of other of your loved ones battling through, not just COVID-related stuff, just everyday life from Cancers to dementia to Alzheimer's, to, and everyday life in the midst of, and then having endings where you say goodbye to loved ones, and you just go through seasons. Whether it's collectively as a group and in our own local church, where you're saying goodbye to ending, you know, you're saying goodbye and your friendships that are ending, and ministry rhythms that are ending, and then you have personal relationships that are ending, the way you went about things that are ending. There's that's juniper tree stuff if you're just living in this space where it's just one ending after another, I think that picture of Elijah for me has been just a window and kind of I know for me, my emotional state and I think for Kendra as well and I don't think we're alone in that. I don't think we're alone in our own juniper tree. I think several of you are finding yourself there. And we hold on to what, you know, Dan Allender's quote there, right? That that God's at work and in that space and, and doing something there, and I think I shared with you earlier in the summer, I've. what are you holding on to, Eric, at the Juniper tree? I'm holding on, do you remember, at the end of May when we were down in Nashville at the Alliance Council and we had a group of people gather around and, and pray, and one of the folks now, about 15 or so folks gather around a prayer over me, and one young man stepped forward and said, Eric, I think God wants you to know an image, and it was based out of Jeremiah 17. In the year of drought, you're not going to fail to bear fruit. He said, the Lord wants you to know that in your eyes, your visible route, you see barrenness, wilderness, desert, juniper tree. You just see juniper tree with your eyes, but there's a large body of water rising up underneath you, and fruitfulness is coming. Hold on to that. Boy, I've held on to that. That's what I'm holding on to, church. That God is at work. There's a body of water rising up. That fruitfulness is coming. I can't see it. Not quite sure how. Not sure what it's going to look like. So, the journey from where you are to where God wants you to be starts right where you are. Where are you today? Are you at Tishbe? Are you at a place of beginning? Feel like God's preparing you for something that's next? Are you at Zarephath where you're like, that jug of oil looks about bone dry? That jar of flour looks completely empty? Just need to endure. Are you at Zarephath? Are you at Mount Carmel? Do you come in this morning just God breaking through, showing up and showing off on all corners of your life? Or are you at the juniper tree at a place of endings? And here's what we hold on to, church. No matter where you plot your you are here dot on Elijah's journey, because I think there's an overlap to our journeys in all of those, here's what we can hold on to. We'll find what Elijah found at every single one of those spots. What's the consistent theme? God is there. God's there. He's gone before him and is present with him. At Tishbe, at Zarephath, at Mount Carmel, and under the juniper tree. And if that promise holds true for him, church, at home, promise holds true for you, and for me, and for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the storyline of Elijah. Thank you for the honesty of the prayers that he prayed and the record he kept and. Uh, thank you for how the map of his life gives us some perspective on our own lives. I pray for those who are placing their you-are-here dots in a spot they never wanted to be, never imagined being, but I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, give them such a clear, clear experience even today, even in these moments here today, that no matter which spot on the journey they are, you are here. You are with them, you see them, you know them, you hear their cries for help, and you will come through in ways that sometimes are visible realities. Uh, we can't see it, but we trust you in it. So pour out your Spirit in our place of beginnings, in our place of endurance, in our breakthroughs, and in our endings. We worship you, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.